turn please again to Jeremiah chapter 9. We're going to continue to fan out 9, 23, and 24 throughout Romans. And we might need a couple more hours to do that. If people show up late, there's always inevitably one or two whom I envy that can be that far from society as to not hear about daylight savings time. We have a few like that in Tetelestai. Uh, treat them like those who came in at the end of the day in the vineyard. They can come in and hear the last seven or eight minutes of the message. <laughs> Might be something in there for them. Now, I believe Paul still needs teachers for the preschool. The announcement's still up here. So either see Paul or Colleen Matthews if you want to. Suffer the children to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, you can prevent them if you want. But how's that for an announcement? That's pastoral pressure if I ever heard it. Also, there is a Vision Beyond Borders baby and big kid clothing drive. And there are there's an announcement out there for that. If you have something, you can contribute to that. And any questions, you can see Ralph Anderson right over there. Right, up. He's waving at you. Very worthy cause. And speaking of worthy causes, there is the Bolathon, the ninth annual Bolathon on April 7th, which we can invade with Tetelestai Bowlers, sponsored by Gigi's Gang. That's Pauletta, Mrs. Brown. Incidentally, I remember Rob... You used to be a good bowler. Pauletta, make sure you talk to Rob Van Ryn. Make sure he gets to that bowl-a-thon because he was good. I remember his dad used to tell me, because I rarely got strikes. We used to bowl. And if I was on your dad's team, he would always say, well, you got the majority of them. <laughs> that was great. You remember that? That was awesome. I still remember that. So that's on April 7th from 1 to 4. And it's at Wildlife Lanes. That's perfect for Ted Lestai. Wildlife Lanes in Lower Burrow. And you can sign up for it, 15 a person. And if you want to just sign up for it and not bowl, you can go just to watch Pastor Brown bowl. Because he bowls more than 100. Okay. He's tired of me torturing him on that. Jeremiah 9, but also Romans 5. We're going to break in on Romans, the epistle, at a certain place that I think will speak volumes to what Jeremiah, what Yahweh says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9. Once again, this is fanning out Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 in Romans the epistle, it's kind of an early distillation on what the Romans epistle is all about. And the hypothesis I've had that we're kind of proving or giving evidence for is that Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which in the Greek translation is 9, 22 and 23, is kind of a, distilla a distillation of what Paul is saying and doing or what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout Romans, the epistle, and we're sort of demonstrating that and it helps us to get an overview of RTE, what we call Romans, the epistle. The name of our series is reading Romans with the light on, and that's the light of the glory of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, whose presence is with us today. The son of God is here today. Jeremiah 9.23, this is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his or her wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his or her strength. The rich person must not boast in his or her wealth. Instead, if someone boasts, let him or her boast that he or she understands and knows understands and knows that I am the Lord who does mercy 
and judgment and righteousness. He executes it. He does it. He accomplishes it, performs it, produces it. All those words work. But the word does accentuates divine action. Romans, the epistle, is all about divine actions. That even gets down to our spiritual lives, which is God in us, willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Again, 924, if someone boasts, let them boast that they know and understand. Understand and know that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment. Very important word for us. The word in the Greek text is krima. It's a general word for judgment. There's another word that you can't confuse with it called kata krima. In the Greek, English transliteration like this. And that's downward motion plus krima. Kata, downward krima, judgment. Downward judgment means condemnation. We're not talking about that today at first. Kata krima is condemnation, a judgment unto condemnation. Krima simply means a judgment. And depending on the context, it often means a judgment unto acquittal. A judgment unto acquittal, which is kind of like what justification is. But he does judgment over the earth. The word crema is found in Jeremiah 9, 23 in the Septuagint. The earth is the sphere over which he executes this judgment. Notice again in 924. Let him boast if he knows and understands that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness on or better even over the earth. Because these things constitute my will, says the Lord. He does judgment over all the earth. Epi there means over. It indicates the sovereign rulership of God over the earth. The earth here is the horizon over which he governs with judgment and righteousness and over which he does mercy. Jeremiah has another passage which says, O earth, 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 a triple salutation. Hear the word of the Lord. God does judgment over the earth. The earth is the sphere over which God does mercy. And executes judgment and righteousness. All of these divine actions are inextricably linked. That means you can't separate them from the word of the cross. All of these divine actions are inextricably united with the word of his cross. 1 Corinthians one eighteen mentions that explicitly. And this is shown first... In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, in Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. And that's what he became on the cross. In fact, Romans 1.17 calls him the righteous one. It's a messianic reading of that passage rather than a normal reading, which the tradition usually puts forth. The righteous one will live by his faithfulness. The righteous one there is Jesus Christ. And because he lives, we live. So this judgment and righteousness that God does over the earth is shown first as Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was displayed publicly between heaven and earth, lifted up from the earth, over the earth, to be the propitiation for the sins of not only of us, but of the whole world. First John 2, 1 also calls Jesus Christ the righteous one. If anyone sins, let them know they have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, for the sins of the whole world. 
So this execution of judgment and righteousness over all the earth is shown first as Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was displayed publicly over the earth to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. And Romans 3.25 is a tough read in the Greek, but it means he is the propitiation for sins through his blood. And his blood there means the climax of his faithfulness. And so it should be that he is a propitiation through faithfulness, his faithfulness, a propitiation through his faithfulness, which climaxed in his death, therefore his blood. So I'll say that again. This execution of judgment and righteousness over all the earth, and also mercy over all the earth, was displayed publicly when Jesus Christ was crucified and elevated above the earth to be the propitiation for sins of the whole world through his blood, which is the climax of his faithfulness or the final end of his obedience to the death of the cross in Philippians 2.8. His faithfulness is the same as his obedience. And that's something that we need to grab a hold of because Paul said his message was to bring about the obedience, which is faithfulness, among all the nations, in all the nations. And this obedience, therefore, is equated with faithfulness. It is equated with Jesus Christ's faithfulness. So if you want to call it his obedience, if you want to call it his faithfulness, we are saved by his faithfulness, saved by his obedience. And the gospel is intended to bring about faithful obedience or the obedience which is faith in us. And that's something that's evoked in us. It's something that's produced in us. It's something that's by grace we are allowed to participate in the faithfulness and the the obedience of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's our privilege. And it's even our privilege in this evil age. His faithfulness, then, is the same as his obedience, which was to the extent of death by crucifixion, says Philippians 2.8. And that yields to Philippians 2.9. Therefore, he was highly exalted and given a name which is above every other name, so that at the mention of the name, Yeshua, every knee will genuflect, every tongue will sing praises and acknowledge that Yeshua is Yahweh, that this Yahweh who spoke through Jeremiah is Jesus, the word incarnate, and the one who was lifted up above the earth. And we know from our study of John, if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself, all to myself. He was lifted up. He is drawing all. He will have drawn all. By the eschaton, the final moment of history. And so it's very important for our understanding of all of Romans to understand it is the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ by which the many will be made righteous. That's another important word that is in Romans. We're dealing with some key words here. Dikaia oi or dikaia os. The word here, we'll just call it the noun, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E, just the English transliteration, dikaiosune. Dikaiosune is the word for righteousness both in Jeremiah 9, 24, or 23 in the Septuagint, and it's a key word throughout Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of, of salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for therein the righteousness of God Dikaiosune, the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed for my righteous one says God will live by his faithfulness Jesus Christ will live in resurrection as the reward of his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. And because 
I live, he said, you will live also. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So there's an equivalency that we're going to find in Romans 5. The many equals the all. In Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many equals all. Because in 1 Timothy 2, 6, he gave his life as a ransom for all. Many in Matthew 20, 28 and Mark 15, 45, 10, 45, make that, is equal to all in 1 Timothy 2, 6. Therefore, Paul plays with that word, the many equaling the all, in Romans five eighteen to 19, as we'll see. So then, we're dealing with God doing righteousness, doing justice, doing judgment in the earth. Those who want to lean on the justice of God ought to pay very strict attention to this, because he who became a propitiation through faithfulness resulting in his blood, leading up to his blood, is the same one by whom God justifies the ungodly. In his death, Christ died for the ungodly, and therefore God the Father justifies or sets right or makes right the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, then backing into Romans 4, 5. It is God who rectifies. It's God's action in Romans eight thirty three. And he who did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up as a sacrifice for us all, all, how shall he not with him being given, give us all things freely, give us all things freely. Who will lay a charge against the elect of God? God who justifies? Christ who died? The thought is preposterous. So his faithfulness is the same as his obedience. It is his faithful obedience by which the many, which equals all, will be made righteous. And that word is the plural in Romans 5.19, where we're going. Dikaioi, dikaioi, plural, that plural ending means righteous ones, people made right. Not people declared right. Justification isn't a declaration of your righteousness. Justification means a rectification, a making of you to be righteous. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not that we may be declared righteous in a forensic legal sense, but that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. Salvation in a phrase, in him. Salvation in a phrase is in Christo, in Christ. Salvation in experience is our life extra se, outside of ourselves, in Christo, the experience of salvation. Those who are being saved to us, who are being saved, the word of the cross is not foolishness. It's the power of God. So, his act of righteousness, Jesus Christ's one act of righteousness. There's another word with the dikaio root. His one act of righteousness in the Greek is this. It's dikaioma. Dikaioma, very strange word, not used too often, but it means an act of righteousness. Jesus Christ, one act of righteousness, equals Jesus Christ's faithful obedience, climaxing in his blood, his death. His blood comes up again in Romans 5, 9, where the scripture says, therefore being saved from wrath by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by his life? His resurrection life. The righteous one here is the one who is living because of his faithfulness. But because he lives, we all live. He was the only, he was the one who was elected to rejection and no one else. 
And he experienced that rejection on the cross. He alone experienced rejection. So he, will, he alone experienced the predestination to damnation. He became a curse for us, for us, for us. We still have yet, I think the church still has yet, to tap the meaning of that in its totality. It is the faithful obedience by which the many, or all, will be made righteous ones, dikaioi, because of his act of righteousness, dikaioma. His act of righteousness is contrasted with Adam's one act of trespass, one act of transgression. Adam's one act of transgression unleashed the power of sin in the world so that all became sinful in Adam and all died in Adam. All were considered to be condemned in Adam. But not only matching but far overcoming is the act of righteousness by the second man by which those same people condemned in Adam are justified, made right in Christ. His Righteous act, which is really not just a righteous act like we'd think of a good deed. His whole life was a righteous act that culminated in his crucifixion for us. It was a lifelong act of righteousness. We're going to see this unfold a little more clearly in a moment. His act of righteousness, dikaioma, resulted in the rectification of life. That means a justification that consists of life. When you rectify a problem, you solve the problem. The problem is that we were all under sin and the result or the wages was death. The only way to fix a people that are dead in sins is to make them alive. Justification equals the making alive of the dead with the life of Jesus Christ, a life from the dead. The law, we're going to find out, couldn't do either one of those things. The law can't make you righteous, and so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness in the big 10-4, Romans 10-4. Christ is the, both the termination of the law for righteousness and the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. So he takes the whole Torah, the whole law, and the whole Old Testament and makes it, reduces it to a secondary function, which is to testify of him that he is righteousness. Christ is righteousness. The Torah, often considered by the Jews to be righteousness, has been replaced by Jesus Christ, who is righteousness. And the law testifies of that very fact, that Jesus Christ is righteousness for us. His act of righteousness, dikaioma, resulted in the rectification of life for all. That's Romans 5.18. We're going to look at it in a moment. We're going to break into the text in the middle, in the middle of Romans. We're, on Wednesdays, we're pressing from the right flank to the center. We're pressing from the left flank to the center of Romans. Here we're breaking into that center, and I think which is one of the heart of the heart of the matter. Paul is always at the heart of the matter in his epistles. But then there's the heart of the heart of the matter, which we would call the X-ring in the middle of the center circle on a target. The X-ring. The X-ring is really, in our study, in the shape not of an X, but a cross. This hits right dead center in Romans and right dead center in God's plan of universal salvific mercy. So it's the faithful obedience by which the many, which is all, will be made righteous. His act of righteousness resulted in the rectification of life for all. That's why you bring in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul said, I have determined this. I've made this judgment in my life that because one died for all, then all died. So now, he says, the love of Christ overpowers me now this love of Christ for all mankind overpowers me because when Christ died so did they and the only thing they have to look forward to if they've died is life from the dead 
And that is why he preaches the gospel to all people. He said, I owe a debt to barbarians, to Jews, to Greeks, to the wise, the unwise. All of these are categories that men invent, including ungodly and godly. God doesn't see mankind in a binary way. He doesn't see mankind with the bifocals of the saved and the damned. He uses that to teach his universal salvific will by separating sheep and goats, etc. But that's how man sees. God looks down upon humankind and doesn't say, I'm going to make the sun shine only on Christian countries, and the Muslim countries don't get the sun. Now, if you want to go that way, the Muslim countries get a lot more sun than we get. So where are we with that analogy? And he doesn't say, oh, I'm going to look down here and America, that's a Christian country. Yeah, right. America, I'm going to let the sun shine on them. They're righteous, but I'm going to withhold the sun from the Soviet Union because I don't let my sun shine on commies. I'm going to hold the rain back from them. But no, Jesus said, if you want to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect, that is perfect in love, just remember your father makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. And the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why wouldn't his redemption be for the evil and the good and the righteous and the unrighteous? So we've got to fix our little traditional things about way, the way God sees things. For example, in John five twenty-eight and 29, those that have done good will be raised to life. And those that have done evil will be raised to judgment, crisis, which is like crema. What's he saying there? Is he saying there's a resurrection of the damned and the resurrection of the righteous? No. Jesus is saying if God makes his son to rise with healing in its wings on the righteous and the unrighteous, then there are none who do good. So if Romans says there are none that does good, then it appears that no one will ever be raised to life. But all have sinned, and therefore it seems that all will be raised to judgment. But guess what the judgment is? Acquittal. So however you look at it, the judgment is for the acquittal of mankind. Or if you don't want to believe that, then you can reduce the value of Jesus' death on the cross if you want. Reduce it. Go ahead. Almost every proclamation of the gospel from the lips of preachers in America, the so-called Christian country, is an announcement of reducing and marginalizing the value of the death of Jesus Christ. And it just fits the congregation with bifocals to see mankind. When Paul said, I don't know any man after the flesh, but why do we have to know half of mankind after the flesh? That's not the gospel. God gives us bifocals not to see mankind split in two, but to see the ages split in two because the cross ended the evil age and the evil age is still passing away. It's still here, but it's passing away. And the age of God's salvation has entered. We are able to see bifocally the age that's going out and to see the age that's coming in and even to live the life of the coming age in some meaningful measure. Now that's the true bifocals that we need. We need to be given, but that's something will continue to unfold here from this pulpit. And so this is how God does judgment. How does he do judgment? And blessed are you and boastful should you be if you know this God. And if you understand him who executes judgment over all the earth, this kind of judgment, who executes righteousness, this kind of righteousness over all the earth. You can brag. God says, in fact, he commands it. I mean, we're human. We got to brag, don't we? Human characteristic, brag. Just can't brag in your, your wisdom, your strength, your riches, your talents, your abilities, your performance, your achievements. Just got to boast in the Lord who does mercy to all. Boast that you know him. Boast that you understand him. That's why we're here, to come to know and understand him. 
So this is how the Lord does judgment and righteousness over the earth. It's like the rain that our Father in heaven sends on the righteous and the unrighteous, meaning everybody. It's like the sun that he makes to rise in Malachi 4.2, the sun of righteousness that he makes to rise, the son of God that the father makes to rise with healing in his wings or salvation in his rays. To see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines from the face of Jesus Christ is to see the glory of God our Savior and to experience in some measure his salvific rays, the warmth of his salvific rays. And so, does the son of righteousness who rises shine on the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, or just the righteous and just the good? We got a problem with that because Paul quotes it in Romans 3.10, there's none that does good. There is none who has done good except God in Christ and Christ in God. And the capability of goodness and faithfulness is only in those in Christ, in God, whose life is hid with Christ in God. The Lord does judgment over all the earth. Listen carefully to this. This is Romans. The Lord does judgment, crema, over all the earth by justifying all those who were once in the man of the earth. Adam is called of the earth, earthy. How does God execute judgment over all the earth? He justifies all those in the earthy man, the man of earth, Adam. And he allows them to bear the image of the man from heaven the second Adam, the second man, the final Adam. That's how God executes crema, judgment, crisis, judgment over all the earth. I'll say that again. It is like the Lord, he does judgment over the earth by justifying or rectifying all those who were once in the man of the earth, 1 Corinthians 15.47 connects beautifully, of course, with Romans 5. Adam, his name is earthy. Call him dusty, if you will. He's made of the dust of the earth. He does this. Reminds me of Dusty Springfield. I loved all her songs. He does this by bringing all those once in Adam into Christ. He brings all those once in Adam in whom all die into Christ in whom all are made alive. And then he says, we have borne the image of the earthy man. Let us now bear the image of the man from heaven in first Corinthians 15, 49. The image of the man from heaven is the man who is the image of God in second Corinthians four, four. It says that the, in 4.3 it talks about the God of this age blinding the minds of those not believing. That includes Christians who don't know and understand God who does these things. Blinds the minds of the unbelieving, the disbelieving, so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. God brings those in the man of the earth into the man of heaven that we may bear his image and therefore fulfill God's original design. Let us make mankind, male and female, in our own image. God executes judgment in the earth by justifying all those who were once in the man of the earth, Adam the earthy. He does this by bringing all those once in Adam into Christ, the man from heaven, so that they will bear the image of the heavenly man who is Christ, the image of God. 
Now, I know that's kind of dense and and a little bit loaded because in that sentence, there is a semester at theology class. And so that's why these we have them on media. We have them in to be heard many times, if you wish, if you're interested, if you want to master some of these things. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we have go on to bear the image of the heavenly man. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the glory of the Christ and Habakkuk, speaking of Habakkuk, the key verse in Romans, Habakkuk 2, 4, go to 2, 14 of Habakkuk and you'll find that this glory of this Christ will one day be, guess what, guess where, in all the earth, in all the earth, the glory of the Christ, in all the earth. Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all the inhabitants are worshipful of God. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the will of God was done on earth when one person obeyed him to the extent of death by crucifixion. By this righteousness, and I'm thinking of what Paul said in Romans 7.25, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By this righteousness that God executes over all the earth, guess what happens? Grace reigns as king over all unto eternal life because where sin abounded and in fact it doesn't just say sin abounded it says sin superabounded because of the law coming in as a side issue god let the law come in as a side issue knowing that sin is so exceedingly sinful that sin would hijack the law in romans 7 we have the voice of the person who is under the hijacked law, who just can't figure out why his or her obedience to the law is shattered and their intention to do good ends up in the doing of evil. God let the law come in so that sin would superabound. It's already superabounding. But it, then it says, and so we got to think of another word like super, superabound or hyper, superabound. Grace hyper superabounded where sin superabounded because of the law coming in. You want to be righteous by the law? And let's say any law, Christian law. You want to be righteous by your obedience and the energy of the flesh to Christian commandments? Then you will have a life of more sinfulness than the sinners you point at and condemn. But it'll be self-righteous. It'll be cloaked with the cloak of self-righteousness. One thing you'll get here at Tetelestai is you can be sure you'll be stripped of your cloak of self-righteousness. And if that's not happening, then the preacher's not preaching. And the shepherd is to be cursed because his sword isn't drawing blood where it's supposed to draw blood. The sword should draw blood in the self-righteous. So then... Grace reigns. But how does it reign? It reigns through the act of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ's one act of righteousness not only canceled but superabounded over Adam's one act of trespass, then grace now reigns in a way and has a dominion that's stronger than the reign of sin with its result in death. Grace reigns through righteousness unto life. We'll see it in a minute. We'll see it again. I'm going to say it again by looking, breaking in to the heart of the heart of the matter. Breaking in to the cross at the center of the circle of the target of the gospel. All this is because God executes righteousness and judgment, judgment and righteousness in the earth. Consequently, because grace is the greater power than sin, capitalized grace, capitalized sin, then life, capitalized life, is in the place of death, capitalized death, which reigned over all of humanity. Now, all of humanity will reign in life by the one Jesus Christ. You know what the coming age is going to be when it's finally realized? Everyone reigning in life, like kings and queens 
in Jesus Christ. That's what that life's going to be. And it's already beginning in some meaningful measure in you, in Romans 5.17. So then, all of humanity will one day reign in life by the one, Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death. Daniel was smart enough to prophesy that when this son of man comes into his kingdom, he distributes it among his people. And so they all reign. Daniel seven thirteen fourteen. Daniel seven twenty seven. This kind of amazed Daniel and shocked him. Seven twenty eight. So then, it always shocks people. It shocks preachers especially when they find these things out, and they say in a way that's sacred, "Oh my God," because they're talking to God. They're not just doing some stupid OMG text. I've got a few of my own texts, which I will not report to you at this time because it's in the, as Jim says, that's inappropriate for a minister. So, judgment unto condemnation. Here's what it means. You can brag if you know this God because his judgment that he executes over all the earth, you know what it means? It means Judgment unto condemnation, judgment ace resulting in condemnation, is replaced by judgment unto justification for life for all. You know and understand this, God? This is how God exercised judgment over the earth. So to illustrate this in Romans the epistle, we will break in to one of the central passages toward which we're pushing from both flanks, Judgment, again, krima, K-R-I-M-A, is in the Septuagint of Jeremiah 9.23, which in your English translation is in 9.24. And righteousness, dikaiosune, that word too, found in Jeremiah 9.23 in the Septuagint, is also found as a key word throughout Romans, but no more key than right here. Romans 5.16, my translation, this will actually appear in our Romans translation when it comes out. Romans 5.16, we're breaking in here, because the more I looked at it, I said, well, that means we've got to go back to 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 1, 1. So I have to break in here. So we're breaking in. Romans 5.16, the gift. Now he uses, Paul, when he gets excited about something, he's got to think of different words. Like if I think of gift, I think of present. I think of a Christmas tree. I think of being four or five years old when I used to be excited about Christmas. I think about when I was two and I got all these toys and so many toys. One of the toys I got was a car, a little blue car with pedals that you could pedal around. And I crushed all my other toys with it. Because until my sister Sandy came in and ruined my run, I was an only child, a spoiled brat. And so I remember presents and I remember, wow, this is awesome. I didn't do anything to earn this. You know, I was just born and born into this lovely household. So... I would think of gifts, I would think of presents, I'd think of free stuff, I think all this. But Paul uses the gift. He uses the gift here and it's todorema. Dorema. Todorema. The gift. And dorema here emphasizes God's sovereign and free action of giving. He doesn't have to think about it. It's who he is. His sovereign free action of giving. It's like the guy in the parable. Somebody owes him $50 million. He brings him into his office. The guy thinks he's going to get raked over the coals. Instead, he writes down a little check and says, debt forgiven, frankly forgiven. It's done. Bingo. Finished. Go by. And the guy goes out and chokes somebody who owes him twelve fifty. That's absurdity, of course. That's when we don't understand mercy. The gift is all out of proportion. When Paul says not like, the translations say it's not like, it means it's way out of proportion to the one man's sin. In other words, I'm comparing what Jesus Christ brings to what Adam brings, but you can't compare them because it's all out of whack and all out of proportion. What God does in Christ is so far superabounds what sin did in Adam that it's not comparable. That's what he's saying. So he says the gift is all out of proportion, not like. I would say it's all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment, krima. 
Now, krima is just judgment. It's general. You've got to define it by the context of what it means. So he says, by one sin brought judgment. There it is, krima, Jeremiah 9.24, and here, resulting in condemnation. That's kata krima. Now you say, that's the result of a judgment is always condemnation. No, it isn't always condemnation. We're going to find out that it's justification. Katakrima is used twice in Romans 5 to illustrate a point. Then we only see it one more time in Romans, and it's in that famous verse in Romans 8, 1, which says in the Greek, and I have the Greek here somewhere, the Greek word I wrote down, or the Greek phrase I wrote down, is Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which says, Uden ara nun katakrima, Tois en Christu Jesu. And the emphasis falls on uden. No, therefore, condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, who's in Christ Jesus? In Christ all shall be made alive. So we see katakrima one more time, which is a judgment unto condemnation, and we find out that there isn't any. None. Romans 8.1. That's coming up. But let's continue in Romans 5.16. On the one hand, sin brought judgment, resulting in the sentence of, we could say, condemnation, katakrima. But on the other hand, in the incomparable comparison, to charisma. Now he can, he's got to think of another word, to charisma. It's gift, but this time it's C-H-A-R-I-S-M-A. The beauty of the Greek is you get to see this. He, he says, dorema first. It kind of like sounds like the musical scale, do, re, mi, uh, no, but, and then it's to charisma. The word charis is in the middle of this, C-H-A-R-I-S, grace. Charisma, he says, now he uses a different word for gift. On the other hand, the gift, to charisma, emphasizing the superior power of grace over sin. That, again, charisma emphasizes the superior power of grace over sin find that all laid out in Ephesians chapter 2. Might have to go to Ephesians again after Romans. Don't know, though. So let's start at the beginning. The gift, dorema, is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift, to charisma, coming after many trespasses. In other words, one sin by one man brings condemnation to everybody, but here's one act of righteousness after so many sins we can't even count them were committed unto acquittal. Coming after many trespasses brought the sentence of acquittal. That's where justification has the meaning of acquittal. Justification is a very nuanced word. Sometimes it means acquittal. Sometimes it means rectification. And that's what we're going to get to eventually. But it says, coming after many trespasses, the gift brought the sentence, the judgment, if you want, of acquittal. In fact, the CSB note, my Christian Standard Bible note, is right to say, or acquittal. Crema here is the general word for judgment and may indicate a judgment to condemnation or to acquittal. Kata crema, which is used here, is a word that means condemnation. And it's used also in Romans 5.18, as we'll see in a minute. And then again in Romans 8.1, where Paul emphatically affirms that there is no kata crema to those in Christ Jesus. Uden ara nun kata crema. Tois en Christo Jesu. So here we have a fascinating parallel to John 5, 28 and 29, in which those who have done good, Jesus said, are raised to life. And those who have done evil are raised to judgment, a judgment of acquittal. What he's doing is not making two categories of people. He's saying that God justifies all. He says God raises those who do good to life, and he raises those who do evil to acquittal, meaning he raises all to the acquittal, which is life, the life which is the acquittal and forgiveness of sins, the life that is justification. We'll see that in Romans 5. So Romans 
has a tremendous amount of connections with John because John also destroys the binary view of humanity. You say, well, those who believe are condemned and those who don't believe are saved. So what are you going to do about that? I'll say this. Jesus Christ was faithful for those who didn't believe. So they're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. How do you like that one? Well, you say, well, that relies too much on Jesus Christ. Bingo. Do you feel naked? I just ripped off your cloak of self-righteousness. You feel naked? Well, don't be ashamed. We'll cover you with the righteousness of Christ. God will. So it's like Zechariah 3.1, where Satan is accusing. And God says, get those filthy clothes off that guy and put, him, put a new garment on them, the righteousness of Christ. So then, just thought I'd, that's a strike. I bowled a Pastor Brown strike, swept the pins, boom, exploded. So there are no good, none good except for God in Christ or those in whom God is willing and doing. They do good, but goodness is the fruit of the spirit. So is faithfulness in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Likewise, there are none in the human race who have not done evil. So they have to look forward to a resurrection unto a crisis, a judgment unto acquittal what do you think makes people fall on their faces before god the fear of going to hell or the sudden shock of realizing that they can't and they won't they'll see this shock as they see jesus christ crucified there will be a universal realization of the historical reality of a crucified messiah all will see And all will see into the depths of the heart of his love there. And all will bend the knee willingly, gladly, and sing praises to him. Even the most hardened of humanity. In fact, perhaps especially the most hardened of humanity. Case in point, Saul of Tarsus. He's always the case in point. Now, this, line's, this line of good and evil runs so well. Here's the danger now. Now, this is such good news. It's such good news, this gospel, that a person would naturally, and I say naturally, want to say, well, then, and some of you are probably already thinking this, I can set up a storm now. It doesn't matter what I do. I can even go out and do evil, and good will come to me and my family and others. And I would say to you, uh uh-uh. In fact, Paul would say to you in the strongest possible terms, meganoito. The reason for that, we're going to explain that in Romans 6, 1 through 8, 13. The teaching to which we are handed over in Romans 6, Handed over, paradidomy, we've been handed over to a certain form of teaching. Tells us that this is emphatically not the case. Shall we go out and sin that good may come? Of course not. Meganoito. How can we that have died to sin continue any longer therein? He goes on to say. So I just want to put that caveat in before we continue in Romans 5. What God did in Christ, listen to this principle. This is another semester in theology seminary. What God did in Christ in the flesh is followed by what God is doing in the Christ in the spirit in us. In that sense, both rectification or being set right and made right and sanctification wrongly divided in Christian theology, Christianity, rectification and sanctification and indeed salvation itself are ongoing actions in us and an ongoing dynamic by which we are liberated from the power of sin by the superior power of grace and by which we are being transformed to no longer be conformed to this evil age, its way of thinking and its way of behaving. So I'm doing that just to catch some of you before you fall. 
Now Romans 5.17, for if by the trespass of the one, I'm going to hurry up on this, if by the trespass of the one, death, capital D, reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? So then, as through one, says verse 18, here's the heart of the heart, here's the center of the cross in the middle of the center circle of the target. So then, as through one sin came condemnation, there it is, katakrima, to all people without exception, that means, so through the righteous act of one, that's Jesus Christ's faithful obedience to the extent of blood or death on the Calvary's, on Calvary's cross, so through the righteous act of one came the rectification of life for all people without exception. Now the emphasis on all here is intended to break down the biases among the saints in Rome. Paul's after something here, not just to do a theological discourse. He's after the breaking down of walls that are constructed of a sentiment and hostility and prejudice and sometimes ideological pride breaks down those walls by showing the universal soteriology that's in Christ. The rectification of all without a view to any man's performance or any person's heritage or any woman's or man's cultural heritage. And that includes men and women. And it even includes women, even though you got a whole month dedicated to you now. So then, I dedicate this message today to Christ Jesus in whom there is neither male nor female. Huh. Whoa. Okay. Now then, I appreciate that, but there's another trend going on that keeps pushing and pushing and pushing against certain other people. We call them men. We used to. It's going to invite a terrible backlash someday. So, be, let's all be modest about who we are. Let's all be modest. Let's not boast. I was born a male, but I'm not going to have a month dedicated to me. I couldn't help it. I was born that way. It's a terrible thing to be a male today. It's a terrible thing. Because to be a male, like that one girl that's going to take the word of man, even out of Manhattan. So, well, you should celebrate by having a couple Hattons. Never mind. Okay. See, I have to settle down. There's a lot going on here, and we're going to close very soon. So the emphasis on all here is intended to break down biases among the saints in Rome, by which some groups, 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 talk about group think, some groups think of themselves more highly than they are, leading to judgmentalism and the despising of others. It's a, it's a terrible mess. It's actually designed. The stuff that's going on in America today is actually designed, and there's useful idiots on both sides of the controversy. The design is from a realm outside of the visible, incidentally, and it's intended to destroy nations. It's intended to destroy the nation that we used to call the United States of America. All of the divisions that are coming in, and when you take sides on that, all you are is a useful idiot for the adversary. Useful idiots that make people very proud of their particular ideology and then hateful of others who don't hold it. And each side becomes a useful Idiot. So there's divisiveness between men and women, between blacks and whites, between upper class so-called, lower class so-called, high-born, low-born, European, African. There's all this stuff. And if you take sides and fight against the other, all you are is a useful idiot for the one who's trying to destroy by dividing. You see, that's the other realm. That's the realm people don't see. Don't be a useful idiot for the invisible adversary. Don't be a stupid moron. Don't do it. I'm just saying there's other alternatives. 
5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, I think we're going to have to continue this next week, just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, his trespass, his, is his disobedience. Christ, his righteous act, is his faithfulness, is his obedience. All these things come together. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners. Many equals all, if you balance it with 518. Many equals all. So also through the obedience of the one, the many were constituted as righteous ones. Dikai aoi. Righteous ones, constituted as, made into. Here's the upshot of Paul's universal martyology, all sin, and universal soteriology, all are made righteous, which he brings to bear, he brings a terrible pressure. Call it the wrath of God, if you want. On the walls that segregate peoples, not on peoples, on the walls that segregate Christian cells and denominations and groups into polarized, fragmented, hating, judging quadrants. All of this is pressure brought to bear, demolition pressure brought to bear on walls. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven today against everything that would work against salvation. That's where Romans 1, 17 and 18 go together. So all of this comes from, and we're going to continue next week with Romans 5, 20. I'm done with this, but so far, because it's enough. Now, all of this, though, is rooted in the word of the cross, because in Ephesians, where all these things are in their primordial glory, Ephesians brings the gospel out in its primordial glory. Romans has to deal with some stuff. Ephesians just tells the story gloriously and universally and cosmically, and we'll see how that works out. But Romans is dealing with a group bias, with group Biases, the very thing that's tearing the United States of America to shreds right now, he's dealing with in the church at Rome. And all of this reconciliation goes back to one event. It's the word of the cross because Ephesians 2.14 through 16 says that in the body of his flesh, he destroyed and brought down the middle wall of partition made of enmity, made of hostility. There he's talking about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But that's just a part for the whole. The cross of Christ destroyed all middle walls of partition that presently separate and segregate humanity into their group biases. In the body of his flesh, through death, he destroyed the middle wall of partition that is actually made of enmity. It's made of hostility. It's made of the ressentiment that comes from groups that think more highly of themselves than they ought toward other groups who respond because they think more highly of themselves than they ought when both are nothing. If a man thinks he's something when in fact he's nothing, he deceives himself, says Galatians 6, 2. And because it's a woman's month, I'll say a man. If a man who is nothing thinks he's something, then he's deceived himself. If I, as a preacher, think I'm something and preach myself instead of Christ Jesus, my ministry is already burned up. It's already wood, hay, and stubble. It's a puff of smoke, and it should be. But if my ministry boasts all day long in the righteousness of God, in the righteousness of Christ, and boasts all day long that I know and understand this God who does mercy in all the earth, who does judgment over all the earth, who does righteousness in all the earth by making all people in Adam righteous in Christ, 
then maybe I could expect a reward, but I don't dare to. I don't dare to expect a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Because, as Paul said, if Paul was worried about it, he said, what if I run, but then I stumble and don't finish the course? There's not a reward laid up for me. So I'm worried about it. I'm not going to ever say, I got a reward for me. I just want to brag all day about God's righteousness and let the chips fall where they may at the end. So then, and we'll let the crowns fall where they may. And if they fall upon our heads, they'll fall upon the ground. So next week we will get to, and then it goes on to say, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace in 2.14, who made out of the two people groups one new humanity. One new humanity. African, European, Oriental, name your heritage, name your ancestry.com. Guess what happens? One new humanity. Name your heritage, name your culture, name your political ideology. One new humanity. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And by that peace that he made by the blood of his cross, guess what he does? He reconciles all things in heaven and earth. You think there's a difference between your political ideology and the bumpkin that you criticize? Wait till you see the difference between the heavenly viewpoint and your earthly viewpoint and see that God has reconciled the two. All right? That was friendly. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Well, really all we've done today is seen a clear picture of our Father in heaven who makes the sun shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, who raises the dead. And we are all dead in Adam, and you've raised us all to a rectification that is life. Thanks to the obedience of Christ, which is the faithfulness by which he lives, and because he lives, we live. We close today, therefore, by saying in the echo of the words of Paul, the chief of sinners, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.